0: It was quiet up on the hills. Nothing but a little bit of wind blowing and maybe maybe just some noise from sheep. It was quiet and it was getting hot and he could feel perspiration just just starting to form on on his forehead and in that wind and in the in that dirt. you know you can feel that sense of when the dirt gets in your sweat and it just starts to stick and you wipe it and it kind of it grates against your skin and it gets a little bit irritating and and well, it's been that way his whole life, so you know he didn't really think about it, but he maybe sat down in some shade and and relaxed and looked at these sheep running around that were his responsibility and and taking care of them and and kind of being away and far away from home wasn't all that bad because you know he was alone and he was isolated but but he could play his music and he could sing and he could you know, just belt it out to God and he didn't have to worry about his big brothers making fun of him or, or uh, harassing him about it or calling him any kind of names or criticizing how it sounded. He could just sing it to God and he could sing it to the sheep. And they seemed to kind of like the music. They seemed to listen to it, maybe even drew a little bit closer at times, recognizing that voice of their their shepherd. And up on that hillside, looking out and taking care of his sheep, there's the little village, that little community and town that that he's from and and he can watch the commotion going on down there and see what's happening normally in a small town in a, in a little village you know there's a rhythm and there's a routine to life and he can recognize all of it from up on this hill and yet it's so remote and yet this this particular day it looks like something weird's happening something's different going on people are moving a little faster than normal usually it's only the kids that run around but now it seems like the adults are in a hurry and people are heading to their homes and everyone's going inside, and there's people that look at, they're yelling at people out in their backyards, and they're waving to come in, and he's too far away to hear about what they're saying, but he can see this commotion like this, this little anthill that got stepped on by somebody. Everybody's moving around, and he's wondering what is going on, but nobody's coming to get him. Nobody's coming to tell him, and so he just needs to stay with his sheep. That's his job. That's his responsibility. It's what he's supposed to do is take care of his dad's flock and he's not going to shirk that responsibility he's not going to walk away it's important he stay there there are wild and predatory animals around there and so he's caring for those sheep but he sees this commotion he sees a little while later people are all heading into the center of town to, to the biggest house or the biggest courtyard or the place where the town gathers for community events or for huge holiday deals and when there's a special sacrifice going on and and he's wondering what could this commotion mean what could it be all about down Down there in the in the valley a little bit, and and as he's watching, and he's noticed that eventually someone starts running up the hill, and it looks like maybe maybe it's one of his brothers, and and he's yelling something, but he's so far away that he can't hear. But of course, when someone yells far away, you yell back, and he's like, "What?" And he can't hear, and you, "What?" He can't hear, and he's getting closer, and he's closer, and he's climbing this hill, and so he's he's breathing hard, and he's breathing heavy, and he's out of breath, and he's trying to say, "David, you gotta get on the hill, you gotta get down to the village." There's a celebration. The village is waiting for you. Dad wants you. you got to go. you got to go fast. And David hears, Dad wants you. And it's like, Dad wants me. The village wants me. They're waiting. Who's waiting? Who wants me? He doesn't know, but he don't ask too many questions. He throws down his instrument. He throws down his staff. Starts running down that hill as fast as his little legs can carry him at 10 years or 12 years old. And running down that hill, and he runs down into the village, and he comes around that corner. And there's the village, the town, everyone that he knows in his life, all of his neighbors. All the kids in the neighborhood, they're all there. All of the adults. And as he comes down and gets closer, the whole village turns and looks at him. And and he feels that. He feels that stare. He feels that sense of like, uh-oh, wait a minute did I do anything wrong lately did I break anything lately <laughs> did I harass anybody I shouldn't have harassed like what is going on why is everybody looking at me and that that sense of like oh no oh my goodness well what's coming this is either gonna be really good or it's gonna be really bad and he's looking for a familiar face and there's his dad and all of his brothers they're all there all kind of standing up like they're in a position of honor almost and they're looking back at David and you know, he meets his dad's eyes and he sees he sees a little bit of confusion. He maybe sees a little bit of hope. He sees a little bit of optimism, but also a little bit of fear going on behind his dad's eyes. He doesn't know what to make of it as he comes up, and then he sees kind of the man, the guy that they're all there for, this old man with this white beard, and he's got the big robes, and he's wearing the priestly robes that are very distinctive, and he knows just at least from reputation, this has got to be Samuel. This is the guy who anointed Saul to be king. He's the guy that from a young age of a little boy was made a priest by God, was made a prophet by God. He himself was a judge of the nation of Israel for 40 years. He was the leader of the country until God had him anoint Saul to be king, and he's here, and he doesn't know why, because it's not a time of a festival or time for a normal sacrifice, but as he walks up, all eyes are upon him, including Samuel's, and Samuel must lock eyes with this little boy, this 10, this 12-year-old boy, David, and and looking down at him as he walks up and approaches this young man and looking him in the eye, he just reaches down and he takes out this this horn that's filled with oil and he just takes the end off of it and begins to pour this oil on top of David's head. And this oil is all in his hair and he's smearing it back and it's running down his neck and it's running down onto his face. And all of the village is watching. All of his seven brothers are there watching Every eye is on him as this happens. Samuel continues to pour this oil out upon him. And they've been waiting for David. And now Samuel turns and he says, let's eat. And the festival begins and the celebration begins. And all this time, David, who has now been anointed, he senses this new power presence in life. The Holy Spirit of God comes upon David as this this young boy. And there's no explanation. There's no sense in the community of why Samuel has come other than to make the sacrifice and that something special has happened with this anointing. But what is it? And what does it mean? We start the story of week two of David with his being anointed by Samuel. God's pursuit of looking for a man after his own heart begins with this ceremony and this process, and it's an incredible ceremony because ceremonies are so important in our lives, aren't they? Ceremonies are moments and, and times in our life where we kind of get to stand up and be acknowledged. We get to be recognized. It's something that that in this particular weekend, many of you were expecting to do. Many of us have family and kids and children that were getting promoted from the sixth grade or from the eighth grade or from high school into college or from college into their careers and their lives. I mean, this is that that time of the year where normally it's the time for accolades and speeches and and just hopes and dreams and all these things. And because this is the weirdest year ever, we're lacking so much of that. And yet... We just, again, congratulations to all of our graduates because it's a big deal and I hope you were celebrated and, and I just think of this importance of these events. In fact, since I'm a pastor, my poor kids are always my sermon illustrations. Let me just tell you a great one. Here's my daughter, Brooklyn, just graduated from the eighth grade. That's right, this weekend, she's been promoted. She's officially a high school student. I now have two high school students and a college student. I can't believe, but here she is with all of her awards. All right, you have to celebrate all of her awards with me. I'm amazed by who my kids are. I have to thank their mother entirely. I can't imagine what they would be like without her. But well, here she is, she's got her bumper sticker that says she's a 4.0 student. That's not gonna be that helpful at this point in time, but later it will be. She's got some kind of presidential award, President Trump sent her, which was really nice of in the middle of all this chaos. She's got this good citizenship award that she earned, just one of two people, because she's a great student who serves and leads in her community. It's all these things that we celebrate, and, and hopefully you have had some people celebrating you and your accomplishments if you're a graduate. And hopefully all of us can remember sometime where somebody looked at us and said, hey, we thank you for what you've done. You've done really well. Now, all of these things, all these great little certificates are all fine and dandy. They're going to end up on a bookshelf, pretty much collecting dust at some point in time in our life. It's not that the pieces of paper are all that meaningful or even that little great wooden plaque, but they all tell something. They all say, we recognize something in you, that what you have done, your hard work, where you're going, the trajectory of your life is worth Applaud it. We want to encourage you in it, and we all need that encouragement. In fact, it's this incredible thing because it is this same idea of what has happened to David. That when God chooses and He anoints someone, there is this sense of, of expression that says what you're doing is being noticed. And we applaud it. We're glad. We're excited. We're with you. It also says that we belong. And this is a theme that's not just about David. It's not just about graduates. It's about all of us. It's about what God continues to do. It's the very language that God continues to use for all of his people, and that includes you and me. So as we tune into the life of David, we're gonna get to see more of this God that we serve and what he does and wants for us. And so just gotta understand that that the power of being chosen is such a powerful thing. And that's what has happened to David, but it's also what happens to us when we, we decide to follow after Jesus. But when you're chosen, Yet immediately there's a sense of communication that you are wanted, right? There's a declaration of value, right? That there's some kind of purpose in this association. I mean, if you just think back to one of those sometimes horrible, sometimes excellent examples of when you were a child and you got picked for a sport, right? And you're playing kickball and they get chosen is like, oh great, I'm wanted. I'm a part of the team. It's exciting, but there's even more momentous things than that in our lives and we're chosen. Maybe one of the most powerful is when somebody kneels down and says, I want you to marry me. Or when somebody kneels down and waits for an answer to, I want you to marry me. And there is that invitation that says, I choose you to spend the rest of your life with me. I choose you for my life to become blended and mixed with your life. That I want to do the rest of my life together with you. I mean, there's no greater sense of being chosen in this life, I think, than marriage. I think it's why even though there's so much of the religious and significant meaning behind marriage has been lost in our culture, people continue to get married even on just a secular stand because we understand the power of this statement, this commitment, this promise that says, no, I want to choose you for the rest of my life. As people, that speaks deeply to us. And God speaks this language to us because he created us. He knows what it is we need. And he wants to provide that and give that to us. And in the story of David we're going to see so much more of this and how it comes alive for us. Let me just re- go over the scripture that uh, the story I just talked about but in verse 1 of 16 God speaks to Samuel and just says, "How long will you continue to feel sorry for Saul? I've rejected him as king of Israel." That was last week we talked about that, you can go back and check that out if you want to. But he, Saul was going his own way, doing kingship his own deal and God said, "No, nope, I'm not doing it. I want a man after my own heart." So he says, This, fill your container with olive oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, who lives in Bethlehem, because I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And Samuel doesn't know Jesse. It's a big country. He's been all over it. Bethlehem's not a huge city. He, Jesse's not a super important guy in that city. So he doesn't know who these people are. He just knows this much. God says, Go to Bethlehem, find this family, Jesse, one of his sons. I have chosen. Now, Samuel, who is an older guy at this point in time, he's ready to retire, actually. But he's still, well, because he's so old, maybe, he's smart enough, he gets this. Like, you can't just go anoint a new king when there's already an old king, an original king, a first king. Kings don't like it when God decides somebody else should be king. And Samuel brings us up with God and says, Now, you know, if I do that, or if this becomes known, or I tell people, Hey, here's the new king, Saul will come and kill me. And probably not just me, but my kids, my grandkids, my whole family, possibly my whole village. I mean, we know that just, I mean, it's amazing to think that this is talking about going to Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, this very thing will happen when Jesus is born. When Herod finds out that the prophesied king of the Jews is born in Bethlehem from the wise men, he's gonna go and destroy all of the, of the baby boys two years old and younger, right? He's a jealous, protective, vengeful king. And Samuel's saying, Saul's not gonna be any different if we just make broadcast this and make this news. And so God says, yeah, well, don't do that. Just get an animal. Take it down to Bethlehem. Show up and tell them that you're there to make a sacrifice to the Lord. So Samuel does exactly what God says. He's like, okay, sure, works for me. So Samuel did what the Lord told him to do. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of Bethlehem shook with fear. They met him and asked, are you coming in peace? I find this so fascinating. Right here comes this white haired, white beard, man in these priestly robes with an animal. He doesn't appear to have a sword or an army or an entourage. He just comes into their village. But they see him, and they know who he is. They know his history. They know his life. They know that he speaks for God, if nothing else, as a prophet. And they don't know why he's there. It's not a festival. It's not a holy day. It's not a holiday, right? There's no re- good reason that they know of. So, is he come bearing bad news? Is he come with a message, maybe, of God's judgment? Like, it's just a wild card. They don't know. They don't understand. It's never happened before. The man, when he comes, they know that he comes with a power. He comes with authority behind him is he comes from and speaks for god and so they're afraid and that question of have you come in peace is is met with fortunately a great answer which is yes i come in peace I come to make a sacrifice to God. Now, all of you guys, all of Bethlehem, go and consecrate yourselves, which means change into your Sunday best. Put on clean clothes. Wash yourself. Take a bath. We're going to be sitting in close proximity eating together. You don't want to smell horrible. Prepare yourself for making this sacrifice in this time of worship to God. And so they all go out. And he taps Jesse and he says, I need Jesse and your boys. You guys are going to be my guests of honor. So, like, come up here when you're done. Go Go get yourself cleaned up. And they go and they do it. And it says this, when they're all coming back, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. that's the firstborn son of Jesse, and he thought, surely the Lord has appointed this person standing here before him. sees the first son, there's just something in his bearing. He's just like, oh, this could be the guy, right? He's just, he's a firstborn. He has that command presence. He's got seven younger brothers. He's used to telling people what to do, maybe, right? He's tall. He looks tough. He's, he's wizened, maybe. He's been mentored. He looks smart. I don't know. He, but Samuel looks at him and just like, hmm this could be the guy, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at how handsome Eli is or how tall he is because I have not chosen him, right? This so it's like God's message to all the single ladies out there. Don't look at how handsome he is, all right? Don't look at the appearance, all right? And vice versa as well, right? I mean, watch out, guys, just because she's good looking. Okay, this actually applies to all of us. We're all prone to look at the surface of people, of things, of opportunities. We're all inclined to look at what seems like someone's life is like and like oh they must have it better than i do oh their family is so put together oh she or he just they've got it all going on it's so easy to judge from appearances good or bad and we're prone to do it we almost always do it it's part of who we are because it's what we can see it's really all that we can actually do is look at appearances but God does not see the same way people see. People look at the outside of a person, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is God's response. He says, look, you know what? I know that's all you see, that you're looking at the outside, that you see somebody who looks qualified. You see somebody that looks like they might be honest. You look like somebody that looks like they might be confident, right? I mean, it's just a fascinating thing that in our culture, I mean, how you look and how you— you know, impress people with your trappings or with your clothing or your haircut or your smile. I mean, we know that these are the ways in which you please people, that you draw people in, that you make people feel at ease, right? Some of that is very good. Some of that is also useful when you want to manipulate people. We know not to trust smiles and like, you know, from car salesmen or people who sell vacuum cleaners door to door, right? Because they're trying to look trustworthy and nice and it doesn't always mean that they are, but it doesn't always work. Sometimes we get sucked into the outer appearance. Sometimes we rely on that outer appearance to hide our own stuff, our own issues, our own things. I mean, who hasn't been angry and yelling at their kids when the phone rings, only be able to change your voice over to be nice and sweet and say, like, hey, what's going on? Hey, how are you? Yeah, I mean, we can all do it, right? We can live on that level of the superficiality and control it. But God is saying, I'm not looking at that level. I'm looking at the heart. He can see x-ray vision right into us, not at the physical heart, of course. He didn't care about that, but he's talking about the inner life, our thoughts, our intentions, our desire. And he's looking again for that person, that man whose heart, who wants what God wants, who is ready to be the person God wants them to be. That's who's God looking for. And he's gonna find that in not an adult, in this young boy, David. I heard this great story recently uh, and it takes place in a, well, in the country of Paraguay and uh, it it revolves around this enormous trash heap, this enormous dump that is down there. I mean, it's massive. You can actually see videos of it in in YouTube. Huge area. But this man came there and he was looking around and he saw that not only was there this massive dump and just trash coming from everywhere, but there were all kinds of people working in that dump. Grab it and drag and stuff out of it for like scrap that they could resile, that they could resell. There were kids all over the place looking for things both they could eat and use for money. I mean, an incredibly tragic scene and scenario. And he was asking the question of, What can I do? How can I help? And he got this idea that he could give music lessons because that's what he was trained to do. And he had a bunch of kids in this neighborhood that were very excited about the concept, but of course, they're all broke and so what are they going to do for instruments well he gets this idea and a friend that works in this dump and says hey keep your eyes open for any materials that we could use to create instruments and they do it they start finding all kinds of old cans and finding old x-rays and finding old string and wire and silverware and i mean getting creative and they managed to put together instruments that kids could play and they actually got so good at playing these instruments they made an entire documentary around it. They ended up traveling all over the place. They called them the Landfill Harmonic. I mean, there's a whole documentary. You can watch it. It's awesome. It's on YouTube. You can check it out there. It's an amazing thing, but what's fascinating is when you look at this dump, 99.99% of all of us will look at it, we would smell it, we would even hear all the noise, and we would want nothing else to do with it. We wouldn't see anything other than trash. We wouldn't see anything else, a really sad situation. But this guy saw an orchestra waiting to happen. This guy saw this as a means to transform and change people's lives. I mean, it's amazing what he could see. It's like a God moment in terms of him, this vision and clarity of saying, we can make something good that could change these kids' lives come out of this. Most of us don't see that way in the everyday life. He probably didn't see anything else in everyday life, but this moment, he saw it. But this is just this awesome picture of how God sees us, that he looks at us And looks not just on the surface, but he looks into our very hearts, into our very minds, into our very lives. And you know what he might see? He might see some trash. He might see some garbage. He might see some ugly stuff that maybe we keep hidden from the rest of the world. He might see some greed, some jealousy. He might see some envy in there, right? He might see some anger. He might see a lot of hypocrisy. He might see some deception and some lying, right? There's all kinds of stuff that we know is in there if we dare look at our own heart, at our own motivation and give ourselves an honest evaluation. And yet God sees all those things, but he sees past all those things. He sees also what we can be. He sees that very image of God that he originally created us to be and wants to restore back in us. And it's an awesome thing to understand that God knows you by your heart, not just by your look. Doesn't care all that much, I think, what we do with our hair, what kind of clothes or how expensive they are that we wear He doesn't care what we're driving or what kind of house we're living in. Those aren't the things that God is impressed by at all. He's looking at our hearts. He's looking at who we actually are. He's looking at what we care about, what's important to us, what motivates us. He's looking at how we react and respond to him and to people around us. And he knows us. He knows what we were made for. He knows what you were designed to be. Because he's the designer of every single one of us. And he knows that in our heart, the greatest longing of the human heart is to be fully known and fully loved. He knows that, and you know that. You don't have to think that hard about that statement to actually listen and think, man, what I really want in this life is for somebody who both knows me, like gets me, understands me, can handle and see all the stuff, all the junk, all the things that are there, and still fully love me, fully accept me, acknowledge them, address them, but accept me. Take me exactly as I am. M. It's the longing of all of our hearts that that is a possible place, a possible person. It's where this idea of a soulmate sometimes comes into our society. It's what we hope and want when we have a best friend that we can tell all the stuff that's going on inside of us. When we get married, it's what we hope and want in a spouse. right? There's, there's just people that we turn to that we want to be able to pour ourselves out, but all other people are imperfect. They have their own garbage, their own junk too, and they're limited what they can understand, but God is not. God can take and handle and understand everything about us. And that's what's so incredible about him is he can see all of that and not give up on us at the same time. Old Testament and New Testament, God reveals himself in this way. In the Old Testament, he describes himself as the God who is merciful and just. When he declares his name on the mountain in front of Moses, he says, I'm the Lord God who is merciful and compassionate and forgiving, even up to a thousand generations of those that love him. But he's also just, and he can't let sin go unpunished, punishing the sins even to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate him. That there's this mercy and this justice in God. And when Jesus shows up 2,000 years later, John chapter 1 describes Jesus as God come down as a human being, and he is full of God's grace and God's truth. He is all of this. He sees the world in the same way. He sees the human heart and understands what is going on inside it. He understands the brokenness that's there. He he understands, but he also loves. He also extends that same grace, that mercy. He lets a prostitute approach him and cry tears on his feet and wipe his feet. With her hair and pour perfume on him, even though the religious people around him are like, "Why would you? If you knew who this woman was, why would you let her touch you?" And yet he accepts her. He loves her. He invites a tax collector to follow after him, and a man who's going to ultimately betray him to his death. Yet be with him for three years to have every opportunity to meet and know and experience this love and acceptance of God. That this is who God is throughout the story of Scripture, working to redeem and invite people to know Him as a Savior, as a just Judge, as a loving Father. This is who God is. This is the same God in the story of David that is intersecting with our lives right now. And back in David's world in this moment, there's Samuel looking at Eliab. God's saying, not that guy. I know he looks good on the outside, but don't judge by the appearance. I'm looking at the heart. So he looks at son number two, and it says this, Jesse called Abinadab and told him to pass by Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this man either. Then... Jesse had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, "No, the Lord has not chosen this one." <laughs> Jesse had seven of his sons pass by Samuel, but the Lord, but Samuel said to him, "The Lord has not chosen any of these." All right, so this is a horrible moment, by the way. If you're any of the seven sons, I mean, can you imagine this? The village is out. You're like the guests of honor at this really improv special dinner, and, and all of a sudden, Samuel, the judge, the priest, the prophet, is like. Eliab, nope not you, Eliab, sorry. Um uh Shema, you nope, God says not you. I mean it's kinda like public rejection away. That's pretty stinking rough. But Samuel doesn't know which one it is, so he's filtering through all of them. Like, is it this one? Is it this one? Is this one? No, it's not, right? That's a pretty drastic kind of way to go about it, but that's all he's got to work with. So then he asked Jesse, Um, are these all of your sons? Like God saying no to this these seven. Seven sons. Any of these nope, not any of these. Um Jesse's like, well, I got one one left. I still have the youngest son. He's out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel said, "Send for him will not sit down to eat until he arrives. Now, I don't know if David got left out because he's the youngest and they're like, well, we don't need him or he's not important or we got to have somebody watch the sheep. You know, I'm not sure or it was an improp kind of a thing. And so they just forgot about him. Like, oh, yeah, he's out there with the sheep. We forgot to go get him. We don't know. But he's not there. And so now I love that he says, all right, we'll go get him because we can't eat. It's like, you imagine Thanksgiving dinner and you're like, special guest shows up. Like, well, we can't eat until somebody else gets here. You're like, oh, they better get here fast, right? I don't know who had to go get him. Maybe it was one of the brothers running off. I'm sure at top speed to go get David. And I love this. So Jesse's sitting and had his youngest son brought in and he was a fine boy, tanned and handsome. And the Lord said to Samuel, go appoint him because he is the one right such a great thing here is david who was finally chosen right this is the one god's been waiting for and he's this kid i mean he's okay, we don't know exactly how old he is he could be 10 he could be 12 he could be 13 somewhere in there probably more than likely um god is looking at him samuel's got to be kind of thinking to himself like are you kidding me right now like we got saul the really tall king and now we got david the really short king who's not even like a man yet king i mean this is, a, this is an interesting ride following God. It's full of surprises. Maybe there's even just a little bit of a quirky, mirthy smile that kind of comes over Samuel going like, wow, I can't ever predict what God's going to do. And so he takes, takes David, this chosen one here, and it says that Samuel took the container of olive oil, poured it on Jesse's youngest son to anoint him in front of his brothers. Like that's such a great line. David, the young, obnoxious, annoying little brother, probably who bothers his big brothers, who always wants to be doing what they're doing, right? Because that's what younger brothers want to do and want to be. But he's the young, he's the eighth. It's not even like he's like the third. I mean, he's like eighth. He's way at the bottom of a period of, of a pyramid of sons, right? In terms of significance, importance. I can only imagine in this moment, as this is happening to David, that he has got to be maybe beaming, just thrilled. He's getting this recognition, but he also doesn't know why. Because you'll notice Samuel isn't saying, I now anoint you king of Israel. Those words are not going to come out of Samuel's mouth because he's already talked to God about this. We start broadcasting this, Saul's going to come down here and kill everybody. Certainly going to kill him. Probably going to kill me too. Right? This would be be a, a big deal. So he's pouring oil on him. He's anointing him in front of the family, in front of the village. I mean, David's got to be looking around going like, dad's looking at me right now. And he's got a twinkle in his eye going like, I had no idea it was going to be this son. Brothers are looking at him. They're going like, why him? Probably. Or (laughs) like, this is the worst day of our lives. I don't know. Hard to know what their family relationship's like. But all the neighbors, right? All the village kids, the cute girl down the street, they're all watching David. And he's got to be going like, this is amazing. And then it says, from that day on, the Lord's spirit worked in David. From that day on, God's Holy Spirit just came down on David and worked inside of him. It was close to him, was near to him. God's Spirit came upon him and began to change him. And I love this last little bit, just Samuel then went back to Ramah. Like, that's that's the end of the party. That's all we know. It doesn't fill in any other details, but you'll notice this. It leaves out any instructions for David on how to become king. Samuel doesn't give him a manual, like, hey, you're going to be king someday, you need to read this book. He doesn't invite him to come get mentored by him. Let me tell you how to be a good king. Right? He, he doesn't tell him anything. He doesn't even say that we have listed here, hey, by the way, this means you're going to become king someday. We don't know when this happens, but there's no instruction for David. But he has and he receives the Holy Spirit to lead him. And he has something else, too. He has the law of God. I mean, that's what they call the, the ancient scripture. He had the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and and Those were hugely important to David. In fact, he writes, the longest chapter in the Bible is a psalm that he writes celebrating how good the law of God is, how much it instructed him, how much wisdom it gave him and offered him. I mean, it's filled with incredible things like love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, things that Jesus is gonna point out and call out. David has got the Holy Spirit of God inside of him. And he's got God's law to come back to. And we're going to find out in David that he's going to take a lot of that and put it in a song and he's going to sing it. But what's really cool about this picture is that this applies to us as well. That this is exactly what Jesus gives us and offers us when he was with his disciples. He told them that, you know, I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be crucified and to be killed, but when I'm gone, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is going to come upon you. Power is going to come upon you. You're going to be baptized and the power of God. Of the Holy Spirit. And it happens in Acts chapter 2. We get to see the picture when Jesus it do, is killed and he rises from the dead and he spends 40 days with his disciples and then he ascends into heaven. And he tells them to wait for this power to come. And in Acts 2, it actually comes on him, and there's these flames of tongue that kind of come down from heaven in this big, loud wind. And people are rushing up to see, like, what is this crazy disturbance? And, And all these guys from Galilee are speaking foreign languages and Chinese and Urdu and Farsi and, you know, all these things. And everybody's listening, going like, you know, you sound like you're from Galilee, but I'm hearing it in my home language. I mean, what does this mean? And Peter steps up and preaches the sermon, says this is the Holy Spirit like God described way back in the prophet Joel that's come to pass and it's happening now because Jesus, you remember Jesus from 40, 40, 50 days ago now, 50 technically was here and we all shouted crucify him. And you guys remember you crucified the King of Israel. You crucified God's Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. But it's okay because it was all part of God's plan because he didn't let him remain dead. He rose from the dead. And he ascended to sit down at God's right hand. And all the people are hearing this going like, we killed the Messiah? What are we supposed to do with that? And here's what Peter says. He says, here's what you do. You change your hearts and lives and be baptized. Each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, look, if you just put your faith in Jesus, if you understand that this is why he came and he died, this was his purpose in coming was to bring you forgiveness to reconcile you to god he's going to give you this gift of god's very spirit the spirit of god in your life but he says first step change your hearts and lives the word he actually you there is repent it literally means do a 180 degree turn turn around turn your heart around go from i'm doing life my way Going where I want to go, doing what I want to do. I'll deal with my own pain, my own challenges, my own hurts, my own problems, my own loneliness, my own isolation. Right, my own successes, my own victories, my own whatever it is on my terms. Saying to turn that around, and saying God, my life is Yours. I want to follow You. I want You in my life. I want You to show me how to live. I want You to be the answer to why I'm lost. To my answer to what my purpose is, to what why I'm here on this life, how I'm supposed to live, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what is wise, what is foolish. Saying change your heart. Just turn your life toward God and start living in that direction. It's that trajectory. It's that start moving. Let God move in your life. Just turn your life over to him. Peter just points out, look, this is so simple, but this is what Jesus came to do. Because the question that that is getting answered here is simply this. Look, this isn't about changing your heart and life, becoming good enough, because all, On our own, we're never going to be good enough for God. Like, there's no religious way to become good enough. There's no deal that you can make with God. God owns the universe. He doesn't need anything you already have that you think you can offer Him. Your time, your life, your treasure, your whatever, to wheel and deal. He just wants all of you, and you can't ever earn His acceptance. But this is why He gives us His Holy Spirit, because He knows this. One, you, you were never meant to be on your own to start with. You were never meant to do life by yourself. You were never meant to try to just be good or please God or be righteous or be holy by yourself. We're not capable of it. As people, we're nowhere near capable of that. We all fail that all the time, which is why God says, I'm not leaving you alone. You put your faith in my son, Jesus, and the forgiveness of sins that he brings, and you will have my very presence with you all of the time. And that power of God is going to come alive in you. That power of God is going to open up his scripture and his word and begin to teach you and help you understand what God is saying. It's why we come back to reading God's word all of the time and encouraging our life groups to gather and read God's word all the time and to have these discussions because God speaks through his word and through his spirit. It's how the word of God makes sense to us. It's why David had the spirit and God's law to be able to make sense of all these things of what God wanted him to do why it's not just important for us to gather for the first time in a long time and to be able to meet together in our homes and to see people again and to feel that relief from isolation, which is awesome, but it's also to engage God together and to learn from God and what he wants to teach us through that meshing of his spirit and his word. But it's really understanding that this is not about trying. It's not about, about really us, our effort. It's just simply saying, man, God, we're here to cooperate with you with what God is wanting to do. Because he's already done all of the big work. He's paid for all of our sin already. He's already looked at your life. He already has seen all of the garbage that's inside of us. He's already seen all the things that we've already done wrong and not surprised by any of it, not put off by any of it. It's because of those things that he sent his son into this world to die on the cross for our sins, to meet you right where you're at, to invite you to that turnaround life of following after him, of simply saying, God, I'm, I'm done trying to do this by myself. I'm done trying to take control. I'm done trying to figure out happiness. I'm done trying to figure out enjoyment. I'm done trying to figure out what the plan and purpose for my life is. I want to know what you made me for. God's invitation is to come. Believe, trust, follow. Jesus put it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see God. It means just coming to God and recognizing we don't have anything to offer God. But God is offering us all of His love because He loves us. No reason why other than we're His. He made us. He loves us. And He demonstrates that love by sending His Son. It accomplished so much. It's so powerful when we accept it and we receive it that Peter, years after Jesus goes, filled with the Holy Spirit, writes these really pretty incredible words. He says, you are a chosen people. Like read that and see that again. There's that same language. You are a chosen people, chosen by God. It says, royal priests, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. It says that you are the people that God has chosen. When you respond to God saying, yes, I want to follow after you, you become part of that chosen group that has received it. And he says, you're priests, right? you Maybe you wanted to be a priest someday and you missed that boat. Maybe it never even occurred to you. But now he's saying, if you have received Christ by stepping and following after him out in faith, then you're one of his priests. And you're a holy nation. And He doesn't mean any nation on earth. He means you're part of the very kingdom of God. God's people. God's own possession. He owns it all. And these are the people who are accepting his ownership. He says, you were chosen to tell about the wonderful acts of God who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light to tell the story of god's very rescue just to tell what god has done to be able to share with a little bit of amazement that god would even want someone like me i don't have a good explanation for it i just know he did it i just know that when i put my faith in him and followed him it changed my life i just know that when his holy spirit came down and made his word come alive And it made my life have a meaning that I didn't have beforehand. And it made me excited about being alive, even in everyday situations. Because we are now a people chosen for a purpose. And to have a purpose in your life is such a game changer. And to know that it's an eternal purpose. And it's a purpose by relationship, not by one that we earn. It's given to us. And that's part of our story. That's why we're chosen to tell the story of God to the people and a world around us who need to hear it, that God is looking for people who want to follow him, and that that opportunity is free. All you have to do is want to receive it. All you have to do is be willing to turn to God and trust him and believe him. All you have to do is understand that you can't offer God anything, and he doesn't want anything you have. He just wants you, and he sees you exactly as you are. It's what our faith all comes down to, that it rests on this incredibly wonderful generosity of God. And it's wonder because it doesn't even totally make sense to us. That God isn't asking for something from us. That God simply wants us. That God sees in us just like that that trash pit. That he sees something beautiful and amazing that we ourselves can't begin to see until he opens our eyes to show us what our lives could actually be when we follow him, when we go where he wants us to go. But this generosity is at the core of what our faith is all about. It's at the core of what Jesus accomplishes for us. It's at the core of of what our experience with God is. To really be able to honestly look at ourselves and our lives and just be like, I can't believe all that God has given me. He's given me acceptance. He's given me forgiveness. He's given me this incredible love. All these things I could never have earned, but he did it all by giving us his son, first and foremost. It's in that mindset. It's in that attitude in that space that we come to this table that we called communion. That we come and we just come to these basic elements where Jesus describes and tells his disciples this is the incredible generosity of God. And in Luke 22 we read these words where it says Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to the apostles saying this is my body which I am giving for you. Do this to remember me, and just look at those words. I am giving. I'm giving myself. I'm giving my body for you. He doesn't ask for anything in return. His whole whole ask is, remember me. Do this and remember me. Believe in me. Trust in me. Understand what I'm doing for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he he passes around these this bread. It would have been crackers. He takes it, and he just breaks it, and he passes to each one of them, and he said, look, when you eat something this simple, this basic bread, we eat it all the time, let this bread be reminded that this is like my body, which is broken for you. He then comes to the cup, and he takes it, and he passes it around, and says in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new agreement that God makes with his people. This new agreement begins with my blood, which is poured out for you. It's just a cup of grape juice. It's just a cup of wine. He says, but you guys, you drink this all the time. But Know that this cup, it's a new agreement. It's a new covenant. It's a new contract that God is making that he cannot break. And it's a contract that God is filling out and signing with the blood of Jesus, with his sacrifice, with his very life, that his life is paying for all of the wrong that we have done, for all the sin in our past all the ugly garbage and trash that we brought to the table that God looks past and says, I can wipe all of that away. I can clean all of that out. I can shine all of that up. I can turn all of that into instruments of incredibly beautiful music. And whenever you come to this cup, remember that this was all done through my blood. It's all done for you so that all that you need to do is remember me. Remember that this is the sign and symbols of what Jesus gave us, his body and his blood in bread and in juice. So we come to this table, we come to our homes, we come together with our families right now with these basic elements. and We simply take them and remind one another that this represents his body and his blood, which was given for us. And if you come together as a family and do that now, it's great to explain these things to your kids and let them be a part of it. The important thing is this, that if you're going to take communion and you're going to benefit from it, that you come to this table in faith and understand that this is the generosity and gift of God. And if you've never accepted or received that generosity, then now is the time to do that. Right now, God is waiting and wanting for you to accept that because He wants to give you the gift of life and the gift of His Spirit. If you want to begin that this morning, I'm going to ask you just to close your eyes and pray this prayer with me. You can pray it silently. You can pray it out loud, but just pray, Father God, I believe that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sin. And right now, I want to turn my life from following my own way to turn to follow you. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your acceptance. And I accept your love, and your grace through the body and the blood of your son, Jesus. And I pray this all in his name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with us today, congratulations on joining the very family of God. That's what he says. And if you've done that, we'd love to connect with you and want to encourage you just to connect with us and to click the little link on YouTube or Facebook that says, I I prayed with Corey today because we'd love to encourage you in your journey and your relationship with Jesus. For the rest of us, let's continue to worship and let's take this time of of communion together to remember the incredible power of Jesus' sacrifice and the gift of his Holy Spirit. Let's worship. Man, I love love that song and that reminder of right there what Jesus has done for us. the, The light of heaven, friend forever, your kingdom come. You guys, it's been great uh, being here with you today. Looking forward to seeing you all in real time, in real space, in real place sometime soon. I hope you'll join us this Thursday evening at 7 for our prayer night. Even if you don't like praying out loud or praying with other people, come. We want you there. It's going to be a great time together. We won't do anything to embarrass you. It's going to be awesome, and God moves when his people pray, and we need wisdom and direction right now. Also want to remind you, stay tuned here in the next couple of seconds. Our children's ministry footage is going to roll. and There's some great things for the family and the kids. You guys, stay tuned. Enjoy. Look forward to seeing you Thursday.